we're doing an episode of the Doomer Optimism podcast here. Uh, I am uh, co-hosting here with Josh Helling. Is it Helling or Healing? Helling? It is Helling. Helling. There you go. I said it right. And uh, we have as a guest this evening, or I guess this afternoon, depending on where you are, uh, Jordan Hall. And so um, Jordan is, well, Jordan is a thinker. And I'm not actually sure how to introduce you. Um, Maybe we should have Jordan introduce himself. Yeah, we That's should a let him terrible introduce idea. himself. <laughs> well, so, you know, I, 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 I know you as, as kind of a, a, a thinker and, and a, uh, a heterodox type of voice that uh, sort of injects into discussions at key moments and then uh, disappears again for a while. And I, I, uh, that, that's how I know you. So yeah, go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, I, I would say that maybe a third of my time is spent still kind of in the entrepreneurial space. So I, um, hmm, gosh, how long ago? 2005, I was sitting in the lobby of Google, of the Googleplex, um, where I was going to be meeting with Larry and Sergey uh, to potentially be their first real act, like significant acquisition, big, big acquisition. Uh, and I was reading, um, let's say, a thousand plateaus, or maybe something like that, by uh, something by Deloitte or Manuel Delanda. So that's probably that's probably a nice sweet spot. So about a third in entrepreneurship, mostly tech entrepreneurship, not exclusively. Uh, a third in that sort of realm regime of thinking, uh, all as, as far as like French post-structuralism and uh, complex system science. I was on the board of the Santa Fe Institute for about a, almost a decade. And then a third is in this you know, kind of category of family man with this sort of weird wrinkle that for me to, to host and hold a family requires a certain sort of scope of responsibility beyond merely having a, a household because I have a, uh, let's say a strong sense that if I wanna truly care for my kids, I have to do a lot more than just, uh, you know, pay for their college to put it, to put it simply. So I think that's pretty much it. Like that's a pretty good, simple thing. And the third is actually the center. So everything else is sort of orbits that center. What do you mean by the center? I'm a dad. That's the best way of just understanding it. I'm just, I'm a dad and I thought I could retire and just sort of be a dad. And then it turned out that the world needed uh, more to just be able to take care of the simplicity of caring for my family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, so the idea here of doomer optimism, where this term came from the name of the podcast is, is there's this, what, what Ashley captured with, with this term is that there's obviously doomerism, like, oh, everything shit's hitting the fan everything's going to hell and then but maybe in that uh there's a silver lining a glimmer of hope something beautiful could come out of this so that's that's the general idea of the conversations we have here so maybe you could take what you were saying uh about hmm. uh the world needs something needed something more you weren't able to maybe kind of retire and turn uh entirely inward to the family and, and what is that that you're seeing that the world needs more of um, riff on that. Yeah, sure. So first, let me just kind of throw out there as a, an interesting piece of, um, I guess you might call it either serendipity or symbolism. Uh, as far as I can tell, without any awareness of this, the term Doomer Optimism or this particular podcast, my wife today sent me a link to a article by a guy named Tucker Max, who I don't know, 
titled Do More Optimism. So I thought, hmm, okay. Apparently that's the thing to be thinking about today. So, and somebody else has actually once referred to me as the most pest, optimistic pessimist or pessimistic optimist he's ever met. So that also seems somewhat aligned. Welcome, man. Yeah. So let's see, two or three things that seem to be like, they run really oddly parallel. There's like a wrapping around. So one line is something like, uh, I'll put it this way. My sense, and I've spent now quite a bit of time looking at this, is that the, the vehicle, the, the, the structure of civilization that, that human beings, um, we modern human beings live in, uh, A, is uh, sort of a train heading off the edge of a cliff at maximum speed. And that was baked in, meaning that there was very, it was a train, right? It wasn't an airplane or a boat. The train track literally led to the edge of a cliff and somebody didn't tell us that when we got on the train. Uh, so that was a, a subject of significant effort and work and collaboration with people who now actually, many of whom were actually famous, but back in the day, none of them were, uh, to come to that conclusion. Like, hey, things seem to be off. What's going on? This dig, dig, dig. Oh, shit. It turns out this entire way of doing things isn't going to, was never going to work. It had all kinds of interesting upside. You know, don't get me wrong. We can, you know, double click on that as much as you want. But the first sort of premise is um, this thing is definitely coming to an end and in, in kind of an unorderly, disorderly way. So that's one, one loop. So maybe, maybe that's the doomer side of it. Uh, then the other one, like the, the, the countervailing loop, hmm, kind of a double helix, but actually more, it's actually much more like the streams that you don't want to cross in Ghostbusters, the way it looks like in my visual imagination, is the thing that we were living in, even if it didn't head off the cliff, we really, really didn't want to be living in it because it sucked the meaning out of life, right? It actually was killing our souls comprehensively and ubiquitously and everybody who connected to it um, just became well, the way they traded life. Sorry, they traded survival for life is the way that I sort of tried to describe it to somebody once. Um, and that was a bad deal, but very difficult to escape from. And so this is, this is actually how I came across it. It's like, Hey, I happen to have built uh, tech companies back in the, you know, com era and made, meaningful money. So therefore, in some sense, had won the game as it was structured and could tap into the kinds of things that you got when you had won the game as it was structured. But notice that it sucked. And notice that there was no direction where it didn't suck. No matter what you did, it just sucked in every direction. I mean, you could sort of really, really valorize hookers and cocaine. Uh, not my thing anyway, but even that, even if it was my thing, not really, right? Particularly if, you know, being a dad and raising a family is, your, is the point. And what I noticed was that no effort to try to escape from that was particularly viable. And maybe Joe, we can shift the language that the, I remember having a conversation with one of the guys who was actually, his company had been bought at Google. And I said, look, one of the problems we're facing is the basin of attraction of the 21st century institutional structure is, is extremely deep and complexly bound to multiple different institutions. So if you come in and you really, really do want to do something like change education, even as you're pushing that ball out of the basin, it's bound to say employment and work. And it's bound to you know, the signaling structures that are part of the way that our governance system operates. And right? so all these bindings are very strong, very tight. Many of them are collateral. Like you don't really notice them until they uh, hit you on the blind side. And so the energy you're trying to lift is you actually have to lift the whole fucking thing. Like there is no way that you can pull on threads in any meaningful way. And, and, and this is why so many reformists, you know, efforts to reform certain aspects or pieces end up feeling very frustrated is that 
the system is actually bound into a deep basin. Right. So it actually needs the amount of energy of a train driving off a cliff to actually get kicked out of the basin in which we had been trapped. Uh, so there is the interesting optimism, right? By weird uh, circumstance, we're at a place where the amount of energy necessary to actually change the thing that is most needfully changed is coming and is actually hitting us constantly. The challenge is how do we respond to that, right? It's, uh, and I would say the challenge has maybe two or three elements to it. One is we suck. Like we are super, super addicted. And I don't mean this in a certainly like in a self uh, abusive way. I just mean to say that scene from the matrix where Neo gets unplugged and his body can't move because he hasn't been using his muscles for his whole life. We're not too far from that. I mean, you guys maybe be a little bit different, but the vast majority, particularly of city folk, um, you know, they don't know how to fix their own plumbing. Right? We, we've been very, very, very connected to an institutional structure that does things for us. And for simple reasons, have been optimizing our cognitive models, our behavioral strategies and our relationships to support us being effective in that context. So as that context goes away, we find ourselves um, well, vulnerable, frankly, and feeling, feeling even more vulnerable than we actually are because human beings are rather uh, capable. We just don't know how capable we are until we actually have to put ourselves into it. Two, uh, the physical reality is that we've lifted the weight of, or we've lifted kind of like the, the context of livingness way up here with this uh, 20th century institutional structure. And we could use just a simple example of the amount of BTUs used to maintain our, our lives on the back of fossil fuels. And right now there's a big chasm between a fossil fuel powered economy and any kind of renewable economy. And nobody really knows how to solve that. It may be soluble, I'm not saying it's not, but nobody really knows how. Um, and the distance between the kind of life and the mode of life that is supported by our current energetic expenditure and everything below that is a real distance. And we don't really know how to resolve any of those things. For example, we haven't a clue how to produce enough food to actually feed everybody right now absent the massive amount of fertilizers and um, uh, what do you call it? Pesticides that are currently injected into the agricultural economy. So there's a real gap there. And that, and that gap, if it's sort of perceived, creates a feeling of, um, I guess, Wiley E. Coyote looking down, you know, pre the preemptive uh, uh, falling vibe. And I noticed as I walked, I mean, this is first person for me was to have conversations with people who are domain experts in certain very specific areas, many, 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 like all kinds of them, discover that they had identified that we were real, there were real problems, like say, for example, the uh, uh, plummeting sperm counts is an example, uh, increasingly significant and increasingly likely to be actually true, not just spurious results. Um, but, but two interesting things. One was they hadn't any idea how you could deal with it. And two, almost nobody out of their narrow domain was aware of it. And as I explored more broadly and talked to people from, you know, probably four or 500 distinct disciplines, this was commonly the case, meaning that the, the environment that they were aware of had all kinds of trouble built into it. They didn't really have any clue how to resolve the problem. In fact, they were almost panicked. And they weren't aware of all the other ones that everybody else was holding. And I said, if you brought that into their attention, they started really getting concerned. And so naively at the time, this is now we're talking 2007 or so, 2006, I just sort of brought it to the attention of people who ostensibly in positions of authority or responsibility. And I ran into what I think is pretty commonplace these days, either 
they weren't actually even vaguely interested in anything like responsibility. And so sort of dodged the question as rapidly as they could. Weren't capable of simply processing it at a cognitive or emotional level, one of the two. Uh, if I found somebody who processed it cognitively, I noticed what it looks like when you're talking to somebody who can't process something emotionally. It's fascinating, by the way, if you've encountered it, maybe you have. Um, I'm not gonna name a particular individual, but quite a bright individual. And um, you know, Jim Rutt and I actually were having a conversation. And as we sort of walked through the analysis that leads to the conclusion that things are quite dire, <laughs> three times we had to go through the same logic, like the same exact conversation. Each time he walked through it, got to the point where he himself drew the conclusion that things were significant. And by the way, he was in a position of taking responsibility. The third time I watched his eyes, his pupils dilated. And then he basically went into an aphasic state and began asking the same questions again. It's like, okay, wow, that's a, that's a deep problem. Like literally auto forgetting because he can't face up to the, to the magnitude of what he's dealing with. And I think this is very, very common. Like I'm sure that everybody deals with it. I'm sure I dealt with it myself. It's just, if you've been in it long enough, you've kind of been through the process, kind of like when you've, you know, how they train people to fight in war, right? If you've only heard a gun for the very first time when you're actually getting shot at, you're in trouble. But if you've actually had guns shot at you for a long time, you can sort of understand how the adrenal response is jacking your limbic system. So, um, and then the third piece, which I think is for me was the last piece to tackle, which was the, what I might call sort of the psycho-spiritual element. You know, I, I came to this from the lens of science, technology, entrepreneurship, um, came to these conclusions on the basis of things like kind of object, objective analysis of systems and stuff like that. And initially tried to solve it in the way that somebody like that would, which would be to say, okay, let's look at how we navigate various kinds of systems. But at a certain point in time, it became clear that equally woven into the problem is what some people might call the interior, meaning both the, uh, the psychological and paradigmatic piece, like how the brain itself works and how it, we make cognitive sense of our environment. And then we might call the spiritual piece, which involves simply invoking the notion that the spiritual piece is something that you can talk about at all. Um, and that's another piece, right? So that's the third. So those, those are the three threads. Like thread one is train heading up a cliff. Thread two is call it meaning crisis. Thank God the training is heading up the cliff because we need to re resolve something more deeply. Thread three is how do you actually go about responding to that and noticing the comprehensivity, both in the exterior and the interior, that's necessary to really grasp for you to make an effective uh, choice in this context? All right. I think I may have made pissed a whole lot of people off by saying things that they feel are um, call it incoherent or plausibly manipulative. So I apologize, but what can you do? I, yeah, I don't think there's anything to apologize for, but. Uh... Hey. I, I accept your apology nonetheless. Um, so Josh, you, got, you have, uh, you want to jump in here? Well, so, I, I mean, I'm curious to hear more about your, your train heading off the cliff. I mean, I think that's, that's a uniting theme among, you know, the, the, the group of folks involved in this conversation that lives under the, the Doomer Optimist label. Um, you know, it's almost sort of a precondition, right? Um, the way, the way that you talk about it, um, you know, I, I mean, I hear the kernel of, of, of optimism in the energy. And I heard, I think it was on um, rebel wisdom. You, you had a, a good metaphor that I liked um, of the, the sort of weight of the problems being so great that the current institutions couldn't lift them. I thought that was, that was very evocative. And I'd, I'd like to hear you talk more about 
where you find a glimmer of hope in that, to use today's metaphor, that energy in the train that's going off the cliff. So, um, you know, where, where do we go with that energy? How is it that we could imagine, and certainly not, you know, countdown, but um, even even hope for that energy to turn toward productive use. What does that look like in your in your vision? Hmm. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> it's funny. I, I just happened to see a tweet. I think it was yours, Joe, just before I logged in, talking about grumpy old man energy or grouchy. I think he's a grouchy old man. I think it's more East Coast. So a lot of it, I feel, is, is, is this notion of return. And I, I can't help it. I see the iconography of that written with the U being a V. Um, all right. So I wrote recently a tweet about, what's his name? Scott Adams and his, let's say, confusion with how to make effective choices in the context of the, the COVID crisis. Right? And there's two interesting elements to me about that. One is the, the fact that from my point of view, it gives one an excellent opportunity to observe in real time how the ego mind actually operates when it's you know, not in a position of, of righteousness. And so this is a, that's a whole sub story, which is interesting and useful and fundamentally crucial. And we maybe loop back to that. So maybe make a note that I think that's a, there's a big piece of, of that in, in, in the answer to your question of the positive or optimistic energy. But the second piece was my, I guess, consternation. So a combination of uh, frustration and confusion as to why he was confused in the first place. Meaning we know how to deal with complexity. And it's not, it's not, and it's not a mystery. Right? It's our primordial context. Um, human beings co-evolved with reality. <laughs> That's what we are, right? We're part of part of reality. And there's a way to respond to complex systems, con complex circumstances. Um, but it's not technocracy. And I guess that's kind of the point of the optimistic side. Um, we've, we've lost, we've forgotten, trained ourselves, beaten the shit out of kids to make it so they don't have access to a whole capacity to respond to reality in an effective fashion. And to recover that is maybe the primary theme, right? It's more of a notion of recovery than it is of discovery or creation. As always, there will be a certain degree of discovery and creation for us to do because we are in a new environment. But mostly it's about um, sort of separating ourselves or uh, I guess acute, uh, escaping, escaping the, the various kinds of habits and traps um, and kicking the addictions of which there are many, many, not the least of which is this fucking thing. Um, and okay, so let's go into that. Let's just use that as a case study. We have, uh, we have a circumstance, by the way, I don't know about your background. I like how you, it, things showed up for you, but let me tell you my story. Um, uh, one of the things that I've done over the past, God, long time actually is build what I call my sense-making network, which is just a very large number of different nodes, usually people, sometimes groups with an effort to have there be a heterogeneity of perspective, different levels of, uh, of concretion, like a plumber, a taxi driver, and also a, you know, theoretical physicist, like different styles of thought, different modes, different locations, different lo environments, um, different levels of insanity versus non-insanity, like a very diverse thing. And then I pay attention to it. And I built certain, a certain capacity to read between the lines. I started getting signals probably October, November of 2019 that something weird was going on in China and it was likely worth paying attention to. So I started paying attention to it. And so by the time you get into late November, early December, it was obvious to me that it was going to be at least what I call a category five event and likely even higher than that. 
Um, by the time we get to January of 2019, I began sending out messages to various people. And I felt like the right way to say it was uh, category six to potentially nine incoming high degree of uncertainty. I'm taking my family, putting them in an RV and heading to Texas with six months of supplies and guns. Just as a very simple way of conveying this degree of seriousness that I'm attaching to this particular piece of information. Um, this had the desired effect, which is that many of the people who I communicate with began to take it seriously. So by the time you get to kind of mid-February, uh, sort of in some sense, unfortunately, but, but also in some another sense, quite interestingly, actively involved in a very large number of, of activities happening all over the world, dealing with the, the, the crisis, trying to make sense of it, what's actually going on, how do we respond to all the different elements that are coming up? How do we innovate new mechanisms for responding to things like this using expertise that's been developed in other regimes? Um, I learned about the notion of a fusion cell from the special operations community and got spun up into several of them dealing with like logistics and supply chains and food security and shit like that. It was, it was fun. Um, okay, so here's the thing. So we're there. Let's call it February, March, April of 2020. And you're in an environment which has a lot of noisy data, right? The data was extremely noisy. Remember how, how the, all the early tests were actually tainted? So our early diagnostic mechanisms were actually giving us mm -hmm. completely bogus information. Most of our early information was coming from the Chinese who are known for not telling the truth, right? So that's another big noisy vector. Lots of noisy data. Circumstances changing rapidly, right? All kinds of new things are constantly changing and um, moving from travel is on, travel's off, borders are closed, borders are open. Lots of rapidly changing circumstances. And just so we're all clear, a hyper complex environment from the get-go, right? You're dealing with the whole world. You're dealing with a, an evolving phenomenon, right? At the very minimum, probably a virus, probably not a non-virus at that point. Not clear at the time whether it was lab, whether it was a engineered or non-engineered, still not perfectly clear, although increasingly less ambiguous. But an, and a thing that evolves, right? So once you're dealing with a thing that evolves, you're now dealing with the complex system of, of evolutionary biology, which happens to be interacting with the human immune system, which is another thing that developmentally responds in a very complex environment. And of course, once it enters into some state of, of, of presence in the environment, immediately implicates politics, economics, finance, military, intelligence, culture, right? Like the secondary and tertiary effects go off the board, right? So hyper, basically as complex an event maybe as we can imagine. Okay, so Scott, now I'm going back to him. You're quite right. Like you can't actually make quote, the right call at that point. It is in fact, I think reasonably articulated that if you happen to have made the exactly right call at that point in terms of knowing retroactively exactly what it was gonna be, yeah, you were lucky. Now, if you built a Bayesian network and identified a whole bunch of possible future paths and began weighting them differentially based upon the information that you're dealing with and making the most effective choices you can make in the moment, that's a very good way of responding. But at the point then is you're not making a call, you're making a portfolio of calls and trying to make the sort of the most prudent decisions. And that's the fork, right? The point is we know how to deal with those kinds of environments, right? We have a whole bunch of heuristics that have been dealt with in humans navigating complex, rapidly moving, noisy environments just say special forces on the on a field of combat. Um, don't add more complexity to an already complex environment. Right? Don't take a crisis and make it a meta crisis. Just don't do that, just avoid that. Don't make one-way deep commitments 
If you, if, you, if you know the environment is rapidly changing and noisy, then you'd be quite certain that your choices are low probability and may in fact be having multiple secondary and tertiary consequences and almost certainly will have secondary and tertiary effects that you can't predict. So don't become a single point vector putting all your energy in a single direction. That's crazy. Do have diverse low experiments across a wide front so you can actually learn the surface area of the environment, get local knowledge, find detailed, rich information about particular things that are actually happening, very edge-based. Do create as much clarity as possible in information environment so that the information that is discovered at the local edge can be propagated to the places where it needs to actually be. There's a whole bunch of do's, a whole bunch of don'ts, right? Okay, again, we, humanity, know how to do this kind of thing. They, and I'll just use the out-group language because of a, uh, a level of uh, called frustration, meaning technocracy, categorically don't. Right? Categorically, just that's the opposite of what technocracy can do and what technocracy does do. Right? So it's not that humanity can't respond to these kinds of things effectively. It's that the mode of, say, governance that we have allowed ourselves to be painted into happens to be uniquely poorly qualified to deal with this kind of reality, which happens to be the reality we happen to live in. Okay. So train heading to a cliff. Great. And we, we backed ourselves into a corner where we're being governed almost comprehensively by a system which is uniquely qualified to monopolize and control our collective sense-making and choice-making and uniquely poorly suited to actually make effective choices for us collectively in the context of actual lived reality. Um, that's a recipe for a very bad circumstance. Right? You can use it at the, at the individual level. It's something like, um, let me think, what's a, good, what's a good example of how this would look if you're thinking about it from the first person point of view? It'd be like if you, well, addiction's the right metaphor, but I don't think it's gonna be obvious why. Um, it'd be like if you, if you used the metaphor of, of like playing chess as the way you navigate all of life, maximally autistic. If you took a maximally autistic approach to navigating life and you tried to create a utilitarian algorithmic solution to every problem, you would notice, for example, the combinatorial explosion of information at every single choice branch almost instantaneously and would realize that you couldn't possibly make any choices. You might bullshit yourself into thinking you're actually making choices rationally when in fact what you're really doing is is uh, bullshitting yourself, making choices on the basis of some deeper human heuristic, and then yeah. rationalizing intuition. Right. Exactly, rationalizing it backwards. Um, but the problem is, we do actually have a control structure, which is really, really good at controlling us. Um, and that's the big picture piece of the doomer side. Um, it really does two things well. One is it increases the intensity of our technological power. So the engineering side, it creates a, it does engineering and sort of military industrial complex style stuff pretty well. So it invents new kinds of technologies that increase our capacity to create uh, or impose energy disruption complexity in the world. And it, you know, it, it saw with uh, the Manhattan Project and the atomic bombs, oh my gosh, wow. That's bad news. We learned how to destroy the world. And then it just continued doing so in every domain under the, under the uh, uh, 
that it could investigate. Again, back to this fucking thing, right? Oh my gosh, I didn't realize that getting everybody in human, every human addicted to a dopamine machine that is perfectly optimized to explore your personal bespoke interior was a bad idea. Yeah, bad idea. As is kind of everything that it produces. Uh, how much time, I guess you guys have maybe shifted your entire lifestyle. I still live in San Diego. So I have to do this thing where I you know, painstakingly pick through my shopping options to make sure that I'm not accidentally exposing myself and my child to a super salient uh, nutrition jammer. Whoops, I accidentally drank something that I thought was actually water, but it turns out it's just sugar, that kind of thing, <laughs> or corn syrup. Well, um, so, so, you know, Josh actually runs a little farm and uh, pretty, pretty impressive little operation, it seems like. And uh, he, he, so I think his family's eating pretty damn well, to be honest. And, uh, you know, here we, we produce some of our own food, um, not a huge percentage of it yet on our own land, but we get everything hyper locally. So we know exactly what goes into it. We know the people that are, uh, you know, tending to the animals and the fields. Yep. And all that. So, yeah, we've definitely, we've, I think for both Josh and I, we've put a lot of, um, effort into, uh, just that problem of what the hell is in this stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I can imagine, I haven't been to California a long time, but I can imagine that you're still having to look very carefully at what you're, what you're getting there. Oh, not, not that you wouldn't hear as well if you weren't putting a ton of effort as we are into, into filtering on that. So, so Josh was, 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 uh, trying to drive the train a little bit towards, uh, where, how, how do, what the, what the hell do we do now? So right. me, so as we were kind of saying here, me and Josh are doing some very small scale local type things that, um, maybe impact our, our family. Um, impact uh, uh, some of the local community. Um, you know, if you're buying food from Josh's farm, you're eating better, you're feeling better, probably you're probably better um, uh, prepared for, for say a COVID infection or something like that, even with a better immune system. Yeah. So, so some of those things like that's one of the places I'll just say one of the places I'm stuck kind of cognitively right now is kind of like what else to do. And so, uh, some of that, some of that comes and something you were saying on Twitter um, just recently, you had a few tweets about institutions and the fact that, well, the institutions we have, um, there is know-how in them, but the, the people that that know-how resides in are aging out. Um, there, mm -hmm. uh, there has not been a transfer of that know-how. So even if we say these institutions aren't up to the task, whatever it is that they do that does help us maintain some stability we're going to lose that as well so yep. so we'll lose the bad but we'll also lose the good um, um so so i'm i'm really curious what for one maybe what are you how are you thinking about this and how are you handling this in your own life but just also what do you think for sort of the bigger um picture how do we how do we get some of these sort of microscopic um movements in the right direction how do those become more macroscopic something that that's uh infecting for lack of a better word a larger part of our uh societal system hmm. well obviously a highly relevant highly salient and super non-trivial question um and of course i from the very first point i'm quite certain i don't know um, i'm also quite certain i'm trying very hard to respond as effectively as i can so you know i'll share what, what i think and most of it's probably not very good but maybe it's a little helpful so that's the, the context. Um, let's see. So the way I've, I've, I've largely come to bracket the solution space, right? So that you're already kind of getting the sense that my, my mind, I'm INTJ, 
Uh, so I have an architectural sensibility. I try to kind of think about a whole space and say, okay, have we, have we held the space well? Once we have, can we begin seeing what its natural partitions are? Um, and the bizarrely enough, the exact flip of that, which is I'm also sort of a bricolier. So I like to kind of play with things on the like on the ground. I never read the manual, but also think about things big picture. Those are kind of the two modes for me. So at the top level, um, maybe somewhat poetically, I've thought of it as the physical kingdom, the virtual kingdom, and the spiritual kingdom, right? Three different things that all, I think, have a very particular role to play. Um, at the level of the physical kingdom, I think we actually kind of have a pretty good handle on what to do. Um, how to do it is not as easy, but what to do, I think, is relatively straightforward, which is, the term is coined localism. That it's, all right, become indigenous, seriously become indigenous, like actually reconnect to Dunbar level, human scale, intimate relationship with bioregions, take full responsibility for the entire, you know, loop of the land that you live in and that supports you, like all that, all that, that's all, you know, physical kingdom. And, you know, recognize that that has very particular characteristics. You know, you, Joe, you've been um, beating the drum of severing the globalist, let's call it habit or addiction. And it is not actually the case that we all need to be traveling constantly all over the place. Um, and I would say it's more likely to be much, much stronger, right? For the most part, most of us actually need to be spending most of our time within a walking distance of the place that we have full responsibility for. But then that means fucking taking full responsibility for it. And those two things fit very nicely together. Yeah. And this is one of the things that drives me consistently nuts is that no matter where I move, there's constantly people who are coming there who don't actually live there. And they don't take very good responsibility of the place that I happen to be. And so I have to pick up their trash or fill in the blank, right? And just extend that all the way across. But if you and the people you care about uh, live very close and therefore you be, and have dependency on each other, again, the very natural human thing, it's not magic. Um, you'll tend to do things like take care of each other and consistently begin doing things like feeding back on bad behavior. Now, this ain't gonna be beautiful, right? Human beings aren't awesome at, at navigating these kinds of things, but it's super doable. And we can actually get a lot better, particularly when the other two elements, the other two kingdoms come into play. So I suspect, to be perfectly honest, that the steady state of any viable future looks an awful lot like a, uh, a new form of indigenousness, where most people spend most of their time within a relatively, uh, you know, not, not, not a tiny territory, but a relatively contiguous physical territory. And they have strong bond relationships with Dunbar scale people for most of their attention and most of their life. And they, they die in a place where they are surrounded by people who know their story and who have, they have impacted directly in the human way. And they do not actually yearn or intend to have their name written in history books, but rather be told in lineages, right? That's a way of describing the physical kingdom, okay? I have to admit for, for me, when you said this, the piece about sort of dying uh, surrounded by people who know your story, that felt a little bit more than physical to me. That felt a little bit spiritual. So I was going to move to the spiritual there because I could feel it as well. I mean, that is this, that's the spiritual kingdom. Um, and these two pieces are very well you know, connected. Um, as we see, like any place that has a, uh, an indigenous sensibility, you begin to see the presencing of the sacred in all the different ways that people do, right? Whether they, they build cathedrals or they actually just identify particular natural places that are clearly, you know, the place where the sacred wants to be wants to be practiced. I would say arguably that that connection might be indicative in fact of the physical relation that we might 
um, seek to return to, right? That the, 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 the separation of those things may correspond exactly with the, the, the problems we get. But I think you're, I think this was quite right. And so when I speak about the spiritual kingdom, I speak here to the fact that one, we are in fact separated. So there is a, a work that needs to be done in the interior of each individual for the most part. Um, think of simple things like we get in fights on the internet with people who we shouldn't be getting in fights with, particularly if you actually are aware of the stakes of what we're dealing with. Um, we don't really know how to actually be good parents to our children. We're all having to relearn that kind of thing. That's what I mean when I say spiritual, I mean that kind of stuff. Like we le learning how to actually be wise, really actually be wise. Guess what? Somebody's got to, we are not going to make it through this. If nobody is wise, like that's not a thing. And it's not a thing that we have anymore. There's almost no wise people. So we're going to have to actually relearn that, which is not trivial. Fortunately, we're going to have a tremendous amount of, um, let's call it hardship and unpleasantness to help us become ensouled, which of course is the uh, piece of wisdom is to have suffered deeply and learned from it and come back into a full wholehearted embrace of the life that we are in. Um, you know, Zach Stein's language of ensoulment is very strong. I like that very much. And it speaks like the blues. The blues speaks to the idea of, of living life fully and deeply, suffering deeply from the consequence that you've been thrown into, but not rejecting it, but the opposite, to in fact come back once again to embrace it and to therefore speak into that so that those who interact with you can feel the depth of the ensoulment. Um, and of course, the speaking of it is the words are not the relevant piece. So the spiritual kingdom is that, right? The spiritual kingdom is the, the individual and collective, mostly individual choice to step back into taking full responsibility for your ensoulment in the world and the journey of that. And of course, we can help each other. We can support each other. We cannot otherwise. And in each other, we find things that we could not find on ourselves, um, but that's its own journey. Right? So one journey is sort of the journey that's happening with our bodies and our hands in the world interacting with the soil and the land and feeling the physical bodies, you know, giving birth is a beautiful, it's the joint point, right? It's the moment where the spiritual kingdom and the physical kingdom are specifically located, as is, I suppose, the moment of conception and the moment of death, right? This is the, the big ones. And as you notice right there, you begin to see how religion emerges, right? Religion is the memorialization, the remembering of where these joint points remind us of the intrinsic connectedness, but also allow the support of both to support the other. Right? The moment of death is a moment where the physical grounds us and reminds us so that we are able to be more fully able to access the spiritual and the spiritual supports us so we can actually integrate and become more whole in the holiness of the moment of death of someone who we love and care about. So then we throw the being virtual kingdom into this, right? In some sense, that's the, the troublesome child, um, but that's our, our thing, right? That's us, that's humanity. That's the thing we've added to the, to the, to the context, um, the Promethean problem the fact that we seem to have this capacity to imagine things differently. And right? it's our, sort of our gig, the sapience piece. But we have to actually become adults in sapience. And right? we've up until now been children and more recently adolescents, um, vigorously, vigorously engaging in a, uh, an arms race, race of sapience, because of course, he who um, out innovates uh, gets to be the one who dominates and when the play is the play of dominance, it becomes a war of all against all. Simple as that, right? Everybody's been talking about this for quite some time. Machiavelli named it pretty clearly um, and people have been trying to figure out how to work their way through it. But mastery, and I mean this in the, in the sense of like a Zen master or a, um, a guild master, not in sort of any of the other spurious senses that we use to try to steal the sense of that term, 
of technology is the essence of the virtual kingdom. And the way that I have noticed it uh, and really feel like it's proper is to actually think about it from the point of view of the shamanic lineage. Um, if we go all the way back, there is a shamanic lineage. As far as we can speak, there's something like somebody who has taken specific responsibility for this human capacity in the context of the human tribe and recognizes how dangerous it is and treats it appropriately. You know, whether it's a priest or, or a you know, shamanist, I'm speaking of that energy. Others uh, and sorcerers and magicians, I don't care. But the point is this thing, you know, imagine if the, uh, the kind of the care, the ritual, the intensity, okay? imagine if before you could actually access your, uh, your Twitter stream, you had to go through a ritual purification process that involved drawing your own blood, for example, like really drawing a real amount of pain with a knife on your arm, noticing, okay, I'm taking serious responsibility for a profound potency before I enter into this space. Then you enter into the space after having maybe gone through years of training of precisely how to hold yourself in the virtual context, doing the thing that humans can do in the virtual context. And then by the way, recognizing how brutal that is for both your mind and your body, therefore spending only an appropriate amount of time withdrawing out of it and going through an entire process of healing and becoming whole, right? As opposed to becoming completely addicted and completely blasé about these powerful forces with which we're interacting. So the virtual kingdom is a whole journey of actually taking seriously the potency that we have, the consequences of our capacity to deliver that potency and, and mastering it and taking that exponential curve and finally turning it back into an S-curve and having a, a point at which we can actually come into an equilibrium relationship with body and, and soul. So that's the, the story, that, the way that I see it. Um, I notice if I feel it right now, oh, this is, this is fun. Uh, many people have asked me, like, what are our odds? What are our chances? And the way that I've come to respond is to say, well, if I listen to that question and respond to that question with the aspect of myself that that operates in the mode of chances, probabilities. Thinking about that kind of question, the answer is effectively zero. If I calculate the probability, there's no chance. But if I listen to that question with the part of me that operates in a very different mode, you might say intuition, you might say soul, my sense of it is that we make it. So I'm gonna use that mode <laughs> to guide me as I walk into this thing and, and notice that in fact, I've been doing that now increasingly skillfully for a decade and it seems to work. So it's interesting. Um, Indeed, there's a lot of perspective in that will we make it question. I mean, the, uh, the odds of us all are absolutely zero, right? On an individual <laughs> basis over time. There's no question about Thank that. God, so, right? you know, when we say, Let's are we going to make it? I think the follow-up question is, what do you mean, <laughs> right? Well, I, I, but I will say, Josh, you, you know, you say that here to us and we say, yeah, you know, obviously none of us are going to make it individually. There are plenty of people out there, it seems, more maybe, you know, the pejorative, but more sort of hypnotized by technocracy and whatnot, think they're going to, you know, download onto the hard Fair drive enough. And, and make it forever. So, you know, yeah. it's not it's not out of the realm of possibility that some folks do think, in fact, they're going to make it. Um, no, that's a good point. That's a good yeah. point. But that's maybe yeah, part it, of the problem. It, it, and, you know, one of, one of the things that I'm coming to terms with, with myself, is there's a lot of awkwardness involved in this returning. It's actually something that Jason Snyder, he's another, I don't, I don't know if you know uh, him on Twitter, Jordan, but he's another guy in this doomer optimism kind of circle. Um, 
he said something to this effect, sort of, you know, he's trying to kind of relocalize himself in North Carolina, um, grew up in, in New Mexico, I want to say. Um, and, you know, some of the things he talks about with that, I, I resonate with strongly because I'm doing something similar, right? Trying to come from a life where I had no localization at all, effectively, um, and to localize myself and my family. And there's a lot of awkwardness involved in that process because you're trying to do something you've never experienced really um and you know it's a good thing your intuition is telling you a good thing but you don't really know how you 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 want to uh champion the local but you're not a local uh that kind of thing and and actually the more i kind of do stay put here the more it's coming to the forefront for me that part of that is indeed um spiritual um and religious and i think that there is maybe some distinction there in that for me at least when i hear spiritual i do kind of think of the individual maybe and when i hear religious i think of more of the social the collective um and this is another very awkward thing for me because i grew up i don't know what even to call it agnostic grew up sort of secular um and it's another hole that's so that used to just kind of be in the background didn't really think about it wasn't there now it's total foreground for me like this is a hole that needs filling somehow, but but how, what? And uh, so I think it's, I, I'm in complete agreement with you that that's a big, big piece of, of what we're trying to figure out here and how do we need to move forward? Um, it can't just be, as you put it, physical or kind of secular. Um, that's, that's a piece of it, um, but somehow it has to be religious, I would say in nature. Um, and that's that's a whole can of worms, and I, and I frankly have no idea how to move forward with that. We are, uh, I, I will just say, generally as a family, we're kind of um, together in exploring that and exploring the possibility space um, around us and our local communities and whatnot. Um, but you know, I'm not, I don't even know exactly where I'm going with this. But I would just want to wanted to kind of put it out there that um, it's a clunky thing, and. Mm. and I, I wonder uh, what are your experiences with with trying to return, whether it's physical, spiritual. Um, where, where, how do you see that proceeding in a way that can actually uh, yield some fruit? Because that that's really what I'm. I guess I have a, a latent fear that we'll kind of stumble along and and never kind of figure it out and put it together. Um, this room? Um, okay, so somebody. It won't be me because my memory is not going to be able to hold this. Remind me to come back to, um, let's see how I describe it. Collective intelligence. Okay, that'll, we'll get there later. Important for me. Um, it, it took a while for me to really, really be allow, allow myself to settle into the proposition that this is in fact a multi-generational journey. Like not me, almost certainly not me, even much. I'm 50. It's not going to be, it'll take me 20 years to vaguely relocalize um my kids i have two that are one's 19 one's 17 and one's three my older kids they're probably going to have a rough time too perfectly frank i've become increasingly concerned that nothing meaningful is really going to be in place even for my three-year-old maybe maybe more maybe more at least something but maybe my great grandkids if i sort of think of it in that context and my job is to create the possibility that the, the vectors going in the right direction at the right at a pace where this thing like the airplane gets into the air from the, you know, the scene of the movie without crashing into the mountain, something like that. So it's a different, different frame, right? This is planting trees that you're not going to be seeing in the shade of. Okay. That's one, two, 
you know, it's funny. It's kind of like the, the 12 step program. Let's, let's, let's just acknowledge the fact that we are super hyper crazily non-localized, like even all the way down to the degree of, of, of like just simple things like family. I mean, almost nobody lives anywhere near their family. How crazy is that? It's, it's crazy. Um, and therefore, as a consequence, for example, we don't really know how to family together, which means we also don't really know how to friend or community together. We also don't live like any in any basic relationship with where we might actually be well suited to live. One of the things I've been doing, kind of jump to the details, is I noticed that different places feel better for me. You know, it's kind of a straightforward noticing. Useful, by the way. Like it's, it's, it is in fact the case that I don't thrive in the desert. Nice. That means I'm not going to live in the desert. Interesting. My wife super doesn't thrive in the desert, but she doesn't thrive in the, in the super cold either. She's a four season kind of girl. She likes that kind of energy. Um, okay. I went in an RV and drove all over the country. I've traveled to probably 12 different bioregions. And one of the things that I check in with is, okay, what is my body telling me about the degree to which this particular place is, let's call it harmonious with myself. The way I've actually begun to language it is from more of the spiritual or religious direction is, am I called to this place in the sense of a calling, right? Is, is this place, the place itself, calling me to be here, right? Not as a tourist, but as an indigenous, right? Is, is, there, is there a sacredness here? Do I feel the calling of the sacred? Uh, by the way, my wife totally dialed into the North Shore of Kauai. So her, it dropped, she's like, wow. This is the first time I've actually felt what you were talking about. I can feel this place is really calling me to be here. There's something different going on. I can actually feel myself being supported by the place and deeply called to protect and nurture the place. Okay, nice. It's good that that can happen. But that, that notion of relearning, like I suspect that's actually super, super human. And yet, because we've been, um, call it deadened and distracted and disoriented and addicted geez, and pulled away, it's going to be a relearning, a regeneration of our own native capacity to have a sense of where we ought to be. So where is, I think, a legitimate real question. I don't know how variant it is. I mean, a lot of this is, uh, you know, if you're looking for the perfect partner, you're never going to find her. Um, there's a decent chunk of find the place and then make the commitment and be there and, and learn how to be there. Uh, but at the same time, there's also learning how to have wisdom and supporting each other and finding proper places and getting better at it, building new competence of saying, hey, what kind of heuristics have you used? What kind of things have you noticed? How do you tell? You know, for me, one of the things I've noticed is if I can't drink the water that's in the actual living ground, I can't live there. Simple as that. Just me as an individual. Now, it may be that I could commit to living there if I could find a way to actually make the water drinkable. Like maybe that's part of my responsibility is to make that happen. Uh, but if that's not plausible at all, then it's not a place for me. Um, Florida is out. <laughs> or it is out most places are houses it's a very powerful pruning rule um a brutal pruning rule to be honest let's see who so there's questions of where and there's questions of who um you know i have i have a three-year-old and and i know i've been paying very close attention to this notion of, of indigenousness and this notion of dunbar she was a beautiful teacher because when we were on the RV trip, she shifted from being uh, 18 months to being two, and she got older. 
And one of the things that, that what happened was is the, the simple, small, tiny micro family context was no longer what she needed, just at a, at a developmental level. And her body being very un, unconcerned with whatever, never, with it, whatever narrative we might be using, um, mapped us being completely outside of any tribal context, jumping from one potential tribe to another potential tribe as clear evidence that mom and dad were totally fucking things up out of beyond comprehension. <laughs> Think about that from a, great. an ordinary human perspective, like that context, like what in God's name are you doing wrong? Like you're clearly out of control. Right. So her little two-year-old mind started taking over. Like when we would land in a certain place, she would lock in, scan, find potential family members and just say, okay, that's my aunt right there. And first thing is she would wake up and the first word that came out of her mouth was the name of that aunt. It's like, where's Becca? Where's Becca? Where's Becca? And she would be very agitated until she was able to go back and reconnect with that extended family member, right? Because an extended family, a larger community is obviously necessary for the well-being of humans. By the way, all the way down to just learning. Okay? Grandmothers can teach grandmother things. Uncles can teach uncle things. If an uncle tries to teach a grandmother thing, Mm, kind of, but not really well. And we're tuned to learn through very specific channels. And those channels oftentimes have human archetypes attached to them. If you've got the full complement of human archetypes who are ready, willing, and able to parent, you will thrive much better than if you don't. That's a who. Hard. Think about it. I mean, I don't know where you guys are on that front, but getting other human beings to say things like, yeah, I'd love to co-raise your child with you and, and, and actually can make commitments to a lifetime of that kind of thing. Not easy. It's a who. So that's the other piece. How do we actually begin to go through that process with, with discernment? And you don't want to make bad choices on that front. Um, and yet, of course, the clock's ticking when you've got an actual human being who's growing up. Um, so that's another problem space. And, and in this case, again, you know, we, we went and visited Kauai. What I've been doing is traveling to places, paying as close attention as I can to myself, my wife, and my daughter, who are our collective intelligence. You know, we are the embodied instrumentality of perception that has the most capacity that I can personally access. Um, much more than I can by myself by, hmm, I'd say three orders of magnitude with the little one probably being the most significant piece of that. So one of the things that I've learned is when we got to Kauai, there's a particular person, her name's Chioko. Hi Chioko, if you happen to watch this. And like on day two, the little one, my daughter wakes up she goes, Shioko is my sister. Now, she's never said that about anybody. And she said, sista with an A, which is a neologism for her. She made it up. She identified something. She then waddled, toddled over to where Chioko was, sat in her lap and gave her a kiss right on the lips, meaning she's in my family. You guys get, you guys figured the rest of this shit out. I've, I've solved a key problem here, right? That's family. I know what family is. That's it. You guys figure the rest out. So it was easy, right? Now I have marching orders. How do I create now the envelope of possibility that enables that rightness to settle? Not easy, but a lot easier than uh, because the, the boss figures things out. Um, so that's another piece, right? Learning, notice that this framing there, I'm actually very specifically identifying my three-year-old as a primary collaborator and in many ways, the, pr the principal collaborator in these kinds of questions because her indigenous intuitions are very clean. She's better at it than me by a lot. And I'm doing it for her anyway. <laughs> so I can, I can, you know, I'll figure the rest out. So let's think of some other ones. Mm. Well, I, I just also say, I, I really appreciate the, 
multi-generational perspective. And I think that does, that is when I personally sort of click into more clarity around these questions and these challenges is when I think in multi-generational terms, grandchildren, great-grandchildren beyond, as you said, it's not easy uh, necessarily to do that um, in the environment that most of us, I think, grew up in. It gives you not, it, it does not give you that perspective. Um, but when I can tap into that perspective, it clarifies a lot and think like I was, I, when I asked the question, I was kind of talking about clunkiness and awkwardness and things like clunkiness and awkwardness become so, um, you know, it's a speck of dust, how trivial, what a thing to worry about, what a thing to give a shit about clunkiness mm -hmm. and awkwardness. There's more important things going on here than, you know, I feel a little awkward or something. Um, so I, I, I just want to say, I, I really appreciate that perspective. Um, that, that's really important. We are not um, static beings at all. We're just kind of links on the chain through time. So it's important to keep that in mind. Yeah. And this, like, we can use that to go the other direction in, this, in the story. And the other direction is you've got your own parents. They may or may not be alive. My wife's aren't. But um, how do you take this is maybe from the point of view of the spiritual kingdom, maybe not some people are actually having their parents are coming and joining them in some place and that's beautiful when that happens um but the healing of those relationships and learning how to actually be in proper and right relationship with your own parents i think has two at least two major pieces what makes three obviously there's a big, big chunk of your own interior that is bound up in that so you yourself cannot fully become ensouled to the degree to which you're not dealing with parent stuff which is real um, to the degree to which you're able to create right relationship. And of course you can't do things that they're not prepared to do. You're able to access as much as can be provided in those relationships, which are perfectly singular, right? You got exactly parents. You've got you know, nobody else is, is precisely positioned to do that. You can have people who can come in and kind of fulfill that role, but the reality is there's a particular scarcity, grandparents too. And then I would say the third is something at the level of like collective karma. Like there is something about just taking on from a point of view of fundamental love. And I mean this in the more religious sense, um, that kind of relationship, like really saying, okay, at a, at a, at a religious level, I'm going to come from, from a basis of love with relationship with my parents um, and, and act in that way. And there's something deeper than particulars, deeper than your own psychology or deeper than the, what's possible in the physical relationships that's happening in that context. And say, so, by, by the way, I would say that, that tends to extend broadly everywhere. So uh, closing loops, um, coming to proper relationships, seeking right relationship, finding out how to apologize when apologies are due, heal where healing is done. I mean, what are we on? Step three of the 12-step program now? It's, you know, it's, that's what we're up to. That's what's up. You know, we, we're all comprehensively addicted to a civilization um, and it's not good for us. We're hitting rock bottom. Hmm. Let's see. God, I mean, my, my journey on this is massive. Uh, spending time looking at architecture, ontological design, material science, um, popping up to the technical level, like what, what kinds of energy processes might actually be valid? Um, what kind of paths might we, might we journey? What kind of methods of investigation might we employ to allow us to most effectively actually respond to those kinds of questions? It doesn't do as much good to uh, uh, use a method of inquiry that causes us to adopt and say uh, certain kinds of solar technology that actually lead us to a dead end. That's not a very helpful approach. 
that's at an obvious at a less less detailed level. That's at a more uh, kind of meta meta sense making uh, piece. But of course, I spend personally substantial time on that kind of inquiry. Let's jump, if you don't mind, to collective intelligence. Or no, Great. Josh, do you have a place you'd like to go? No, no, go go. I I I did, but I'll get back there. Go ahead. Let's let's talk about collective intelligence because it uh, may well connect, in fact. So, continue. So let's see. Um, maybe a, a way of framing this that works for me and maybe works for some people, probably not for many, is, um, ah, okay, a metaphor. Um, if, you, if, you, if you take a look at, imagine a, a, a volume of water and imagine that you had some instrument that could allow you to perceive each molecule in its particular location at its particular momentum vector. So you had like a super microscope that could do that kind of thing. Um, and then you started adding more energy, heating up the water. Um, and you were trying to take, keep track of all of it, like every single molecule and every single one of its trajectories as they began to bang against each other. Okay. Obviously, you would enter into a certain level of overwhelm pretty quickly. And you'd be in real trouble unless you invented the concepts of temperature and pressure, which would then allow you to actually have a completely different relationship with the underlying phenomenon. All right. Okay. So using that kind of a metaphor, we can imagine, so let me say, sorry, in the previous metaphor, the amount of complexity in the specific volume of water that you're tracking is too large for your perceptive and um, processing or orienting capacity as, a, as, a, as, a, sure. as an individual. So you have to actually create a different way of responding to it. Abstract the complexity into these principles, which now let you reason with much smaller set of data and equal accuracy. If or or adequately, right. adequately, right. adequately, um, for the kinds of things you maybe care about. You can build a steam engine. You can't actually precisely pick a particular molecule out of the water that has certain characteristics. Oh, well, you got to give that up. That's not what you're doing. All right. So if we try to think about the amount of complexity that is contained in the transition that we're talking about, right? So that's a very simple, simply stated, but it's really powerful. It's like, look, we're trying to do something. The thing we're trying to do has a certain amount of complexity in doing it. I've been describing different elements. We got to figure out where we're going to be, who we're going to be with. We got to relocalize in all kinds of different ways. We've got to figure out how to master our technology. Let's just okay, take all that. Now zoom out. Just make that a sphere. Inside the sphere, there's a certain amount of complexity. It's a lot. If we try to respond to that with something that doesn't have enough capacity, to actually make sense of that complexity and make effective choices in the context of that complexity, the technical term is we'll fuck it up. We'll just make the problem worse. Almost certainly much, much worse actually. Precisely to the degree to which we become desperate and endeavor with lots of energy to solve it. Like say, for example, uh, a global- Blocking out the sun. Yeah, that's a good one. Or seeding the entire the oceans with massive amounts of iron, or locking down the entire population, then engaging in a mass mass uh, vaccination program. These are the kinds of things that you do when you're operating with not enough intelligence to understand the amount of complexity you're dealing with, and you're desperate or stupid. Okay, so what would it look like to create, to cultivate, to participate in uh, something that has enough capacity? to actually respond effectively. The word that I use is to be sovereign in relationship with this particular problem, right? In some sense, it's very simple. Like if you don't get to that place, then you're in trouble. 
you might luck out. And don't get me wrong, we can, we can kind of work our way through it. We can use lots of heuristics, operating heuristics to guide us as we're in the space. And we're going to have to. But what's something over here on the other side? This is the thing I, I called it collective intelligence, God, 12 years ago. Different terms have been used by me and many other people to describe it. But it has to do with the fact that humans have kind of two things. One is this sapience at the level of like the virtual, the capacity to imagine and, and engage in things that are happening in a different realm than the purely physical. The other is what we're doing right here. <laughs> we can network to use a sort of contemporary metaphor. We can communicate, we can form something that is greater than the sum of its parts at the level of all the different aspects of what we could call intelligence. And I don't wanna load that word too much. Right? The point is things like your eyes can see things my eyes can't see. You have access to experience, you have access to knowledge, you have access to wisdom that I don't have. If we are able to support each other, I have more ability to relate to the world than I would otherwise. Simple as that, right? The challenge is how can we actually do that? Is there a way for us to re-cohere humanity, enough of humanity, so that this thing, what I call a coherent collective intelligence, just to give it a tag, you can put an asterisk in front of it if you want to recognize it's just a semantic pointer that has the capacity to actually respond to this challenge, the amount of complexity involved in this kind of a transition. Now notice I'm not thinking about it as like a single mind. That's not the point. Right? The point is in fact, it will be extraordinarily distributed. Maybe in fact, literally everybody and everything they do, but how do we collaborate, right? How do we relearn this sacred art of actually collaborating with other people? And there's a lot of detail to this. Let me give you one particular I don't think I've ever, well, I probably said this out loud, but I, I'd love it to land really well. I make a distinction between two modes. One is coordination and the other is collaboration. There's other modes, but those are two that I wanted to speak to. The mode of coordination in the way that I'm using it, right? So again, it's almost a neologism, but the word's close, um, is uh, driven by paradigms. Uh, a paradigm is a, a logically consistent set of axioms and heuristics, models, and techniques for making sense of and making choices in the context of some domain. Um, so, you know, the classic paradigm from Kuhn might be, be uh, Newtonian physics. So we all have defined terms. While we all have a bunch of tools that we use to engage in, in, in science experiments. And as long as I have that paradigm, you can send me a code. Here's how you do an experiment. I can run that code, come out with results that are valid according to the terms of the paradigm and do a checksum on what you did. Right. Um, we may need to change our paradigm, which means shifting the axioms and the tools, techniques, et cetera. All right. Coordination is something that happens in the context of a paradigm. If we don't, if you have a paradigm and I have a paradigm, we're updating the paradigm. We may be updating the information and the data. Hey, I did this experiment. Here's new information. We may be updating tools and techniques. We may actually be updating underlying theories and axiomatics. Turns out light is not, is not transmitted by the, uh, Luniferous ether, right? Oops, error. All right, update the paradigm. That's a very, very functional thing to do, but it has a couple of real serious problems and limitations. One is it has a huge carrying cost. I don't really understand the deep language that is embodied in contemporary physics. And I, I can't do work with like Eric Weinstein talks to me about physics, there's a certain point at which I'm like, sorry, dude, I can, you know, 
aesthetically know what you're talking about, but I actually don't know how to run the machinery. I have to go through years of training. And by the way, I have the kind of mind to operate it to be able to play in that game, which means that it creates in-groups and out-groups intrinsically, one. Two, the more of reality that it tries to deal with, the more carrying cost it has. This is a cognitive equivalent of what's called the tainter curve problem. And you can, it's a whole really interesting thing. Three, um, for us to communicate across paradigms, this is something that the Santa Fe Institute dealt with at a folk level. Like they never really built a formal theory, but they realized the problem. Like if I got an economist talking to a chemist, talking to a uh, anthropologist, I've got multiple different toolkits that aren't mutually shared and in many cases may be mutually incompatible. So how do I deal with that? Right? I have a communications protocol problem, which means that time has to be spent creating translation layers, navigating uh, aporias or conflicts and actually recognizing circumstances where there may actually be uh, conflicting axioms, which can be a huge issue. Anthropologists and economists, for example. Um, so what happens is, as the rate of change goes up, and as the number of individuals in, in investigating goes up, the total amount of cost of coordination in the paradigmatic model becomes exponential. Therefore, you can't use it to navigate problems of this particular kind. So that's uh, I jumped at the very last bit. You can slow down and go back to it if you want. This other one, coherence, is modally different. That is a different kind of thing than coordination. It is not strictly bound to paradigmatic frames. In fact, it's not bound to paradigmatic frames at all. It can use them. It can instantiate a paradigm and engage in the use of the paradigm as a tool, but it's not using a paradigm as a primary mode of sense-making. Um, this question, this question of how do we actually engage in this new kind of thing. Uh, you guys know John Verveke at all? That's really, really good news because- why, why is that? I know the name, but I do not know what he does. Because he is, he is a particular node, a particular individual who is really earnestly, and I would say effectively, addressing the problem of religion that you brought up. Right? Coming from a background that is super not naive and, and interfacing, he's a, he's a fourth generation cognitive scientist. So he comes from a science background. He's an academic. He teaches at a university. He created a great series called um, Something the Meaning Crisis, Understanding, Escaping, Resolving, some, some gerund, the meaning crisis. It's long. It's like 50 episodes. It's quite a, quite a work. Um, but he's very, very much going directly in this question of, okay, how do we deal with the, the, the challenge and necessity of religion that is adequate to the reality that we find ourselves in? I mean, it's not particularly useful to just sort of go back to a, uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, 30 years war is not going to help us a lot. That's not, not, not a good solution. So what do we do? Point is this, they're dealing with that. Like that's a whole node. And part of that node is how do we actually, the, the technique, te technique that he uses is called dialogos. How do we actually have conversations in this mode that I'm calling coherence that allows multiple different people to support each other, provide each other with the synergy value of their unique perspectives, wisdom, experience, capacity, perhaps piece of the larger story um, that is not the same as coordination and paradigmatic. Now to participate in dialogos actually requires a certain level of interior. I think you said like, if you're shut down by awkwardness, it's gonna be rough. There's an awkwardness. You have to be will ready, willing, and able to just sort of put yourself out there and know that you're going to piss a lot of people off if you say certain things in public. Okay, that's just what happens. How to listen, how to notice like disambiguity. We had some, some things with, uh, you know, 
well, two things. One is the challenge that our language is a, an absolute nightmare. And even worse, one of the primary consequences of the mutually assured destruction arms race was almost all of the energy the military industrial complex over the past 20 years has precisely been put into location of destroying our sense-making capacity, propaganda and whatnot. Um, so communications is a non-trivial issue. Nonetheless, simple skills like being able to notice when your use of a term doesn't coordinate with what I understand that use of the term to be based upon the context of the way the conversation is evolving. And instead of being triggered and angry and just fighting you, having a protocol for being able to say, whoa, hold on, feels like we just had a mapping gap. Can we just raise it up and resolve? And noticing, by the way, that the way that language works is coordination in a transcendent space, not coordination in a semantic space. So this, this issue of, say, overloaded terminology, it's interesting because it's, it actually becomes an issue because we believe we share the same language. Yeah. Whereas if, you know, uh, you're speaking French and I don't know French, then we can't have this problem. So, you know, um, like I don't, we can't get away from what you're calling sort of the paradigmatic coordination, but I think it does connect back to something you raised earlier a couple of times, this idea of like Dunbar's number or, or this sort of maximum scale um, at which certain things can, can manifest. And I think this, the, the paradigmatic coordination has some kind of a finite scale property to it. Yep. And, you know, my sense, and, and you also mentioned localism earlier, my sense is the way, the only way we can achieve what you're referring to as sort of larger scale coherence is by being willing to um, come to terms with the fact that we have to have local paradigms and they, those paradigms can't scale beyond that local. And, and it's like, think about the way a multicellular, you know, your body works. You, it doesn't work by everything being in, in terms of one language across the body. It works precisely because there's local languages. This tissue does that, this organ system does that. This one does not do that. And it only interacts in this highly specific interface uh, that, that's sort of a, a, a translational interface between these two systems. The body works because everything is not the same. And there's very distinct paradigms in different places. So, uh, you know, what you're calling coherence, I, I agree that's, that's actually, um, it's a much trickier problem. How do we integrate across paradigms uh, in, in a way that's mutually supportive of the paradigms? Because I think what we're experiencing now is um, you were saying that a lot of the, the say military technology and, and, and innovation and whatnot is in terms of destroying uh, sense-making, um, but also the non-military type of stuff, the, the sort of um, global consumer corporate stuff is very interested in homogenizing and um, trying to get us all into one paradigm. Mm -hmm. and, and that, you know, it's kind of the Tower of Babel. I mean, this trying to get into one paradigm, it's not possible. So what do you end up with? You end up with, you know, as an example, kind of overloading terms. We think we're speaking the same language. We're not. That's a much worse problem than just speaking different languages. So that, that's, that's, so, so I, I mean, please go on. I, I have, no clear sense how to uh, facilitate that at macro scales. I have a clear sense of how to align my own life with it at a micro scale, but I have no idea how to make it, make it grease the gears for the macro. 
Well, uh, Joe, I think that's a really uh, a good point. And it reminds me, and, and Jordan, this actually gets me back to the, 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 the other topic I was just about to raise um, before uh, coordination and, and coherence. I, I noted, I, I liked your comment earlier, far earlier in the conversation about recovery versus discovery. And, um, you know, the, the, the return with the V, um, I, 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 don't, I don't openly subscribe to a whole lot. That's not really a secret. Um, but I, but I, but I, I guess I'd say I, I sympathetically resonate. I think with a lot of it. And I, what I really liked with the way that you phrased recovery versus discovery is, I think it opens an opportunity to sort of synthesize and integrate some of the spirit behind return with a V with something that I think is maybe a bit more progress compatible, uh, for, more forward looking, um, more clearly not say uh, Luddite-ish. Um, and, and, and I guess maybe one way to, to think about that is that we could recover a mindset in order to discover new ways forward that might separate us from the, the current problems. The, the connection here, Joe, to, to your comment, um, in my mind at least, is that as you talk about the, you know, the value of the local paradigm, you know, we have the, re the recurringly, the repeatedly observed irony that we sit here in different places, um, never having physically met, likely never to do so, you know, and, and having in that same context to talk about the, the virtues of localism. And I wonder if the way that we can resolve that would be to, to, to sort of look at localism, not exclusively in the physical sense. I think, you know, to refer back to your, your, your three kingdoms, Jordan, that, you know, in the physical domain, it makes a lot of sense to buy your milk from the farmer up the street. Um, but are there perhaps ways to, to, to take the, the, the valuable part of that Dunbar-confined local interaction and, and sort of repurpose them into other domains, such as, you know, maybe the one that we're in right now. And, and, and in that way, you know, can we find different ways to move forward with more rather than just, um, you know, a regression? Um, so quickly, just quick caveat. Um, I know almost nothing about the referent to return with the V. I have literally seen it like three times on Twitter and thought it looked pretty. That's all I got. Sorry. So, <laughs> no worries. We can, we can really leave that in the couch and I apologize. Um, or if I did something amazing, it wasn't me. Um, okay. Unless it was pure intuition and aesthetics guiding my choices, <laughs> which it could be. All right. So let's see. My sense is yes, by the way. So to kind of just put it up front, my sense is yes. And I think the metaphor of the body is quite nice uh, because we have chandelier cells in our brain. We have a nervous system. And we, we, we have quite distinct organs, they're doing their own thing, and we have systemic processes that make sure that everything is connected. Um, I'll pull that there, or maybe another way of putting it. You know, render unto the body what is the body's and render unto the mind what is the mind's. Another way of saying it. And here's a way that I, I hit on about two years ago. Oh, sorry, another quick caveat. So Joe, the theoretic framing of paradigm coordination and coherence I hit on 10 years ago, I have been spending like 80 hours a week, 365 for 10 years, and I still haven't got it even vaguely figured out. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm with you. I get it. All right. So, hmm, chandelier cells, communication, the virtual and the physical. Ah, city. So I was dealing with, the, with Jeffrey West's work, which is actually, he's the guy who brought me into the Santa Fe Institute. I should assume you're familiar with his work on, in particular, in particular on cities, and the fact that they discovered 
he and Luis Betancourt and that team discovered that cities had a, a super linear scaling factor with population. So when you double the population, you increase certain kinds of things by 15% uh, per, per capita, like wealth in particular and pace of innovation. And in some sense, I would propose that that's actually one of the key drivers for what the trouble is, like the train, the train's that. Right? The train is this, this challenge that we have that human coordination, collective intelligence has super linear characteristics. The more minds you get uh, in relationship with each other, you actually get a super linear scaling factor, period. Next sentence. Up until like a couple of years ago, the only way you could actually get a lot of minds into relationship with each other is you had to put all their bodies in the same place. So cities grew because the more bodies you get in the same place caused there to be more wealth per capita and more innovative capacity to solve problems like how do I get more bodies in the same place? Right. And of course, more wealth per capita means more power, which means more ability to turn the rest of the environment into a feedstock circulatory system to pull energy and resources necessary into the city. You know, the, and the research that they did showed that it actually looks a lot like that. You know, any given particular region tends to have a city and then a a, uh, a fractal breakdown of subsidiary cities that tend to be regionally holding particular subsets of requirements all the way down in particular, um, not necessarily logarithmic, but pseudo logarithmic um, uh, scale. And it's proper to say that in many ways you are actually still living in one giant extended city state or network of city states dominated by one or two small attractors, Rome being most specifically a very nice cardinal example which is, we might say, is hyper, is exact, precisely the opposite. So I actually identify the empire as being the inverse of localism. And so it's the imperial mode is the trouble. Now here's the saving grace. When we can fully separate the thing and say, oh geez, it actually turns out that it's not having everybody live in the same place. It's having every mind be able to enter into relationality with every other mind. Then we can unlock that. Bodies, and souls can now be reconnected with what's most natural and healthy for them. Dunbar scale, sacred land, indigenousness. Nice. Minds can now have a very different journey. Now, the twist on the mind level is to move from quantity to quality. Now that I can enter into the virtual space, in principle, right now, I could actually have a conversation with almost any mind on the planet. Not all, but most, in principle. Right? I could certainly text, sure. what, 7 billion people, something like that. That's a lot. It's not a problem of quantity anymore. This has nothing to do with getting a, a million or 10 million people into a city. This now has to do with who. What's the context? How well can we actually rapidly get the right people in the right conversations around the right topics? And then how well can we disseminate the consequences of that in a way that is not governed by the propagation vectors of paradigmatic structures? Right? Can we actually allow it to percolate down so the paradigmatic structures are supported and get the information they need to do their work, but you're not required to create a master paradigm that controls everything. This is the distinction. I, I make this distinction between meta and transcendent. Right? A meta is just a bigger paradigm that tries to integrate and control and have every paradigm be a subordinate to it. Transcendent's different mode. Right? It doesn't operate. Paradigms have their role to play. The transcendent has its role to play. Right? That's a kind of, sorry, I'm tacking a bunch of things on, but I felt like it was important to have that in there. So I really do believe that this next stage that we're moving into, if we land there, is precisely that proper relationship between um, nested levels of Dunbar, multiple different kinds of Dunbar scales, hyper-local embodied 
soul, sacred, indigenousness, and then a sort of chandelier cell nervous system happening at the virtual level that has actually reached real mastery of this notion of the qualitative and is able to actually put the mind in its proper location, which is in service to the body and the soul. You say, okay, great. Do we have questions? Do we have problems? How do we actually use the inquiry as the locus? Like if you want to do quality right, first you have to say, well, what, what, why? Like, what are we actually talking about? What is the most meaningful thing for us to be talking about at this exact moment? And are all the right people in the room? Are we have, do we have the right kind of context and capacity to respond to this question really, really well? Yes. All right, now let's do it. And when we're done, break it apart. Right? This is the inverse of an institution. Right? The, uh, instead of having institutions, right, which had, tend to have their whole, whole sort of problem with them, we have this ability to have bespoke convenings of the proper people to quorum, not a quorum, around the most meaningful inquiries. And then precisely at the moment we're like, okay, this thing has done what it can do. You break it and allow the, the, the knowledge, the wisdom, and whatever information data needs to happen to percolate back out into the field of the whole of humanity, which that's the separation. Right, so the separation between the virtual and the physical um, and each one having their particular role to play and the way that resolves what I think is actually maybe the fundamental problematic of civilization. I agree. It's a fundamental problem. I mean, what we're what we're talking about is connectivity kind of destroyed the local and the answer isn't, well, no connectivity then. It's how do we right. evolve a connectivity that reinforces and supports the physical local and yeah i think that's exactly what we're involved in right now trying to figure that out well and and, and how do you leave the physical local with a sense of, of legitimate and, and real sovereignty while also having a participate in, in the in the broader or having any of them participate in the broader right um how, how we, we yeah sorry that that's not very clear but i i think the the question of how we balance global connectivity without the homogenizing force that has so far come along with it, it remains unanswered. This is very connected to the distinction between virtue and virtue signaling. Similar. Um, so let's see. If, you, if you're able to perceive meaningfulness well, then it's obviously the case that the local is the place. There's no question about that. It's obvious, right? clearly, clearly. And the point is, I don't want to talk about it because it's obvious. Sure. When does it become non-obvious? When something has come along that plays on the gap between the salient and the relevant. This is a Verveke concept that he said, and he's defined this quite well. Going back to our food, to use the, the food metaphor. Right, something has come along that is actually able to simulate nutrition at the cost of actual nutrition. And right, that gap between the phenomenal experience that our evolved systems have and how we make sense of our environment to make effective choices and the reality of what fitness really looks like grounded out in reality, that gap, that's the devil's playground right there. And what happens is we make trades towards the salient we, do, we make deals with the devil, right? We pursue the career in the big city 
because our signaling system, the system that we use to make decisions around the world is too easily allured by the super salient. It doesn't understand the long-term consequences. It doesn't have the capacity to notice that what's happening is actually not truly nutritive, but is giving me a mouthful of cotton candy, right? That gap. So the challenge is that, for my mind, how do we actually reground ourselves in the relevance, in the deep, in the things that are actually real and notice the distinction between that and the salient. And what's interesting to me is that's, well, that's why I keep bringing food back in, is general purpose. Right? The problem of culture, the problem of humans working together is precisely that we play in that gap. That's our strength is that gap. We can imagine new possibilities. We can say, hey, you know what? Carrots are awesome. What would happen if we glazed them? Wouldn't that be nice? And it's like, yeah, glazed carrots are fucking tastier than non-glazed carrots. And so soon enough though, somebody's giving you a Snickers bar. Right. Gotta be careful. And so that's the basic problem. Like how do we actually hold ourselves to not bullshit ourselves? And there's a lot to that. You know, think about the history of serious, actual serious cultures. Now, now there may be an interesting opportunity um, and I use opportunity in the broadest of possible senses here um, as that train goes off the cliff. Because I think the way that you just put the, the, the question is interesting, right? It's sort of um, in, in terms of our ability to, to get humanity out of that, that devil's playground, <clears throat> as you colorfully put it and, and correctly, right? That, but that, that, I think even framing the question that way presupposes a lot more optionality than the material reality of 2022 and counting will likely afford. Um, and, you know, I think an interesting question to me is, and, and one that, that kind of makes its way around the, the, the conversations in the doomer optimist world is, um, it, you know, does the, the train's departure from the cliff, in fact, provide an accelerated opportunity um, to, to get us out of that space, um, to, to put the glazed carrots away forever? And if it does, um, are there, you know, is there a positioning of us collectively or individually that, that is preferable um, in advance of, of the, the, the train taking air. Yeah, well, let me, let me, I would say it's almost like every individual has a moment where they really truly perceive the train's proximity to the cliff. Some, that moment's in the future, right? For others, it was long in the past. And really and truly, like it really sank in, they're like, oh shit, this thing's done, right? The more for whom that happens, the different the task becomes. And there's, and there's a point at which enough have seen it and we have become wise enough of how to deal with that reality that things begin to build. And I'll give you glazed carrot. Let me slide to a slightly different example of the same thing. How about a very simple one? Stop fucking lying. Very simple, right? Same idea, a lie is a glazed carrot. Right. Don't do it. Now, I can assure you that is a basic rule <laughs> of any serious civilization. You know, any culture where, where manipulating and lying of, to other people is something that you do is not long for this earth. Um, and yet, we, in our most unserious culture probably ever in history, um, it breaks my heart the degree to which millennials you guys are you guys millennials sorry i don't i see gray in your beard. I'm, I'm i'm solidly x solidly x I, I am i am a millennial you are millennial so uh, it breaks my heart when i have discovered that millennials simply assume that grifting is just how you do it 
that almost everybody everywhere is constantly engaging in some sort of con. It blew me away when I realized that, that was actually the case, that people weren't just in error. That's actually a, an underlying heuristic. But I get it because I remember when I was a little kid, when commercials couldn't tell particular kinds of lies. I remember there used to be a rule against that. And I remember watching as commercials became more and more, just ordinary TV commercials became more and more rapacious. Of course, that was happening in the context of the rest of culture becoming more rapacious. So I can imagine if you grew up in sort of post 1990 or so, it was probably a hellhole for um, your development of what it means for other people to be manipulating you, particularly all fundamental authorities. But among other things, a simple commitment of anyone who's entering into the other side of this, which I call the eye of the needle for obvious reasons, is stop fucking lying. Uh, two, apologize when apologies are due. Joe, by the way, you're excellent at this, and I really uh, honor that and learn from that. You're better at it than I am by a lot. Um, lots of these, right? These are basic, like, this is actually just religion. This is simple religion. This is like the basic, simple religion of virtue. Rediscover virtue, live that way. Remember, return, rediscover virtue, live that way. Support other people in doing it. And right? we all become, this is the society of friends. We all become people who are friends helping each other. Hey, man, I noticed that you did something. I think it's out of alignment with what you actually believe is right. Here's what I see. You know, you're going to have to do with what you do, but you know, here's where we are. Enough of us, it starts to create a culture, a new kind of culture that has virtue. They may not be able to lift a whole lot. I'm not saying it's strong, like you said, optionality and resources, but it's a hell of a lot better than something that's actively contributing to the complete destruction of everything that we care about. And it's the only possible thing that could ever really lift it, right? Basic virtue across all the dimensions. And then what I call sovereignty. Like I tried to, I just stole that term, redefined it, probably stole it from somebody else who actually had stolen it before me. To mean simply the capacity to actually respond to the reality that you live in. As simple as that. It's context specific, by the way. It's very right. useful. I like um, that. I'm not sovereign in the context of growing potatoes, but you may very well be. Uh, but I am reasonably sovereign in the context of making love with my wife, which you certainly aren't. Um, <laughs> although with your own wife, I certainly. Am I was. I was just about to say that. That seems like a great place to wrap it up. But then you made that weird as a <laughs> as a as a place to wrap it up. So. <laughs> um, but right before like that. There's lots of other stuff that's happening at the level of the material. I think we could have a totally different conversation about things like Web3. And I know that a lot of folks in your world tend to be skeptical or even cynical <laughs> um, or even phobic, which is interesting. And well, I am not. Yeah, um, that, 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 is, that is an interesting topic um, I'm, I, I, indeed. And I think you're right. Um, cynical, skeptical, or phobic all implied maybe even a greater um, degree of familiarity and, and accurate perception than um, for many would be appropriate. Um, I, I wonder while we're on that topic, um, I mean, we, we have been going for quite a long time and I, and I think we, we could probably talk about that for uh, days, but since you brought it up and, and specifically with regard to the sort of probable audience of, of this sort of discussion, if, if you could give your, you know, paragraph sized description um, of, of what you mean and what you think um, is, is today meant by Web3, that'd be helpful. Okay, can I, can I just make one conceptual piece just to contextualize? So you remember earlier I said it was really good news that you guys hadn't heard of John Verbeke. And the reason why that's very good news is there's lots of problems to be addressed and there are people out there addressing them. And some of them are doing a good job. 
And when people who are addressing one set of problems are not aware of people who are addressing another set of problems that they're aware are a problem, being able to make that connection is one of the most powerful things that can be done. And so I'm not saying that John's got it perfect, but they're addressing that problem. They're doing a good job earnestly. And if you want to connect them, you, you live in an environment where you could trivially find access. All right, so I'm saying that because I want to say the same thing about Web3. This is a team. They've got a problem they're trying to solve. That problem is something like optionality and resources. I mean, let's just imagine we can wave, wave a magic wand and that magic wand had exactly two consequences. One is everybody right now who controls the world by means of money no longer does. And we have the capacity to use that energy according to our own preferences. Just imagine sure. that's what we did. That's kind of what Web3 is doing. So I, I, I think the challenge in, in, in communicating the idea, the, the, the hopes outside of the technical domain is there's, there's the highly abstracted description, like the one you just gave. And, but a lot of people, especially outside of the technical domain, don't work in highly abstracted descriptions. And uh, right. the particular is, um, you, you know, bored apes. Um, and I well, think I, wish I have several other ones. That's great. But I think <laughs> you'd pick a person off the street and say, this uh, is how we will take control of the world back from, you know, uh, the, the moneyed institutions and provide optionality to the future. And the, the amount of space across which the connecting line needs to be drawn is, is vast. So the only way I can really respond to that is by means of analogy. Um, so both of you remember, I imagine, or at least we're alive in a time where we could remember uh, the thing that was known as the dot-com bubble. Sure. And you remember that little guy, the little talking hand thing? Remember pets.com? I wasn't, wasn't watching a lot of TV no. then. So they bought a Super Bowl commercial, by the way, just FYI. But there was a time, which I remember well, because I was there, when there was a shit show known as the internet. It wasn't called web.1, it was called the internet or the World Wide Web or cyberspace. And most of what was happening was idiotic and stupid. You know, spinning logos, remember the flaming logo thing? Um, Bets.com, ice.com. People were literally selling ice over the internet. And if I had said to you, said, hey, by the way, this thing right here is going to disrupt almost every industry on the planet. And we're, we're no longer going to have like, stores. We're not going to buy stuff like stores. You're not going to go to, to Barnes and Noble and buy books. Or you're not going to go to uh, Sears. Sears is fucking dead. I guarantee it. Done. If I said all these things are going to change as a consequence of this bizarre, stupid piece of crap that people are currently sort of talking a lot of hype around. I remember, I remember the way the dot-com bubble went is it went up and then it crashed. And so it was actually, there was a point in time, roughly around 2000, everybody's like, yeah, I told you it was a bunch of nonsense. And yet out of that, currently are the top five largest cap companies in the world sure. dominating most major industries. Okay, analogy. Web3 is that kind of thing. It's at that stage. It's at the baby stage. It's at the stupid stage. I'm not buying it. I'm, I'm, I'm not buying it. And here's why. Um, in, in, and I don't know what time, you're talking pets.com, so, so maybe you're in late 90s. Um, I, I would argue that the through line from... Um, from Web 1 to today, circa 1990, I would argue four or five, right? Early, 
early Mozilla, you know, Netscape era, right? The move from Gopher to HTTP. I would argue at that point, but certainly, you know, Amazon's first e-commerce transaction or, or you know, you know or e-commerce transactions before that connect to today. Now, I don't think today's version- Wait, wait, wait. are you saying that at the moment where Amazon was doing e-commerce transactions, it was self-evident that they were going no, to dominate the not, economy? Not at all. I'm, but I'm okay. saying that the, the distance, the number of intellectual and conceptual leaps from that point to here feels in order of magnitude at least lower than the conceptual leaps required to go from an NFT to the 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 frothy pipe dreams um, of, of the Web3 folks. And I want to be clear, like I'm not in any sense exciting and interesting. I just find it models. Just smart and, contracts. And, I had I had a conversation today with a young man who was doing some very powerful work and new models of how you can invest in projects. Uh, stewardship uh, owner, steward ownership is what it's called. Right. And he had was going through a whole bunch of, of uh, loops to try to figure out how to solve that problem. I said, oh, actually the easiest way to do what you're doing is to create an NFT which is, by the way, not going to be an ape. It's going to be a company that produces um, material objects and code smart contracts into that that have very specific characteristics. You can now scale certain kinds of investment activities that are um, currently very, very difficult to do in, at all in paper. And you can do it across the entire global economy. Anybody who's connected to the Web 3.0 can invest in this and act, provide their energy. And you have the real powerful advantage that all the rules are transparent and they're actually enforced by software. He's like, oh, wow, that makes my problem actually quite soluble. Now I'm going to try to experiment on it. And now remember, software, you get two really powerful things. One is you can iterate very rapidly. So the rate of evolutionary search goes way up because I can experiment very rapidly against something, right? Two, you have the whole notion of components and reification. Once any piece is actually solved, that piece propagates to basically everybody effectively for free. So the learning propagation is extremely high. So, I mean... Well, Again, I, would, I would even add, um, you, you know, to that uh, compared to other domains of innovation and nearly zero capital costs. Exactly. Things yeah. Considered, right? Close. Yeah. Yeah. So the notion of what Web3 is doing, like the problem of, of bored apes is actually a whole conversation. Like that's, that's a whole thing. And I've been trying to figure out how to convey it to Schmachtenberger who still doesn't, doesn't get it the way that I'm trying to articulate it. But the problem of it is actually, it's one of the deepest problems. You're actually dealing with things like religion in Bored Apes, right? Bored Apes is much closer to say, uh, let's go with Zoroastrianism than it is to Amazon, right? So the example- okay, Bored that, Apes. Pardon? What is Bored Apes? Uh, <laughs> bored Apes is this is this thing, all right? I'll actually show you. It's, this is funny. This is gonna have, I assume it's gonna have exactly the same consequence that uh, it had when I showed it to Daniel. Let's see, how do I find it? Uh, it'll take too long. Imagine a picture of a, of a monkey. Done. Literally just, a, just <laughs> an animated picture, not a photograph, but hand-drawn or like a drawn picture of a monkey, like a grape ape, remember him? Except he's kind of bored. Grape ape's a little bored. Okay. And he, maybe he has a sailor hat, okay? Mm -hmm. Now imagine the M&M buys one of those for half a million dollars. That's just happened. So, and there's 10,000 of them. There's only 10,000. But of course, if you wanted to, you could right click and copy it and produce an arbitrarily large number of them. And in fact, many people have done that. That's Bored Ape. So it's, it creates this weird conundrum that people have a very hard time gluing those two fact patterns together. On one half, it's sort of obviously A, silly, and B, trivially copyable. So why would anybody give a fuck about it at literally at all, like to zero degree? And on the other hand, 
People are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars for these things, which indicates something is not completely trivial. What the fuck's going on? Now, of course, many people, particularly millennials, because of their pre- their, their cognitive pre-assumption that grift is the best answer for literally everything, go, oh, it's just grift. And they often use the word Ponzi, but they don't really mean Ponzi, they mean grift or uh, something that actually has no economic value and is just providing you know, um, buzz. Mm-hmm. Uh, my proposition is that in fact, that is not a correct assessment, although it's not entirely wrong either. It's a very, it's a very interesting story of how this human system for actually trying to sense what is actually meaningful is getting back to trying to find what is meaningful and relevant, but having to journey through the, a culture of complete depravity and nonsense on the way. And it's using an evolutionary search function to get there, which means of course, it's uncovering all kinds of nonsense on the way, but it's getting there. I, I'm, to be clear, I'm quite inclined to agree with you. I mean, I think that to me, NFTs feel like an anti-killer app um, in the sense that I think they distance the, the, you know, the mass market from an appreciation of value. Um, but I, but I'm, but I'm inclined to. Well, maybe I'm not inclined to agree. I'm, I'm, I'm highly hopeful and suspicious that the the fundamental technical elements um, that sit behind them could be used to, to lots of interesting creative uses. Um, but, I, I, but I think that the, the the challenge that I see, and to defend the millennials, um, my my zoomer is convinced it's all a scam. We've had this conversation for, oh, yeah. for hours. Um, zoomers are even more so. Yeah, um, I, I want to. I heard you describe it on that Rebel Wisdom podcast in, a, in what I thought was a very interesting way. Um, you, and I'll, I'll paraphrase you and, and of course give you a chance to, to correct the paraphrase, but what I, what I took away from it was um, a framing of Web3 scam as an arbitrage of understanding on the part of the unscrupulous who you know, took advantage of a, of a, of a frothy, confusing area um, to go, you know, scam folks in, in, in short. Um, I think that makes sense, right? And what I like about that is that it reflects reality, right? It reflects what we're seeing right now, um, but it does so in a way that doesn't necessarily condemn the underlying stuff, right? It still allows the possibility that it's not all a scam. It's just, it's a fertile ground for a scam. So the question, and I think in the interest of time, we probably need to leave it yeah. with your, your whatever clarification you, you choose. And then the answer is, I'd love to hear your take, as I think broadly a, a Web3 proponent, or your, your vision for how do we get out of that mode? How do we, and we not being those who understand the technology um, or those who, who, who reason in you know, big abstractions, but like the masses that we would want to eventually help us take this train either off the cliff or put its pieces back together. How do we get past that stage of, of clarity arbitrage that is rife for scam? What, what is the killer app that takes Web3 out of the wilderness? Well, I mean, in some sense, many of those are already there. If, if we include DeFi as part of Web3, then at the level of finance, that's already happening. What I would say is maybe some two or three things. One is, remember this notion of teams? The reality is at this point, for most people, it's not completely, not at all relevant. Like you shouldn't know or care. That's, you know, I, I know literally nothing about how to do most things in the world. And I don't feel bad about that because sure. it's a big world and I don't know or care about any of that. So if you don't operate in big abstractions and you're not allured by the possibility of uh, playing in things that are super high risk, then you probably shouldn't be participating in this space. That's first. And sure. I think it's very important for people to be totally cool 
with that. All right, second, if you are participating in this space, now things get more interesting. One, you better get your fucking act together. You are dealing with serious shit. You cannot fuck around this time. And I'm super pissed at technologists who do not take seriously the responsibility of what they're playing with. And this time I will, I will bruck nothing, all right? So all the kids who are playing in this space, all the DJs who are out there, DJs are gonna DGEN, whatever. But if you're actually doing something important here, you have to hold not only the intellectual and entrepreneurial capacity to deliver on it, but you also have to hold the ethical and spiritual capacity to know exactly what you're about. Vitalik is a person who I speak uh, particularly, and he's getting there. And I'm, I'm proud of him for actually continuing to mature and grow as a human being because he's holding a lot of responsibility in his position at Ethereum. So that's another piece, right? There's a whole bunch. Part of it is this, the story I was just telling, just rediscovering virtue at the center. The good news is you can't, if there's a lot of people. And one of the interesting elements of Web3 is it is actually very driven by synergy value. So there's actually a real fight going on right now. And it's real. I think it's just like, think of it as a war. Like it's an actual war between the sort of anthropic uh, scam, uh, parasitic energy that is attracted to and is able to manipulate and play and pull energy away. God, that happened like crazy in the first two stages of blockchain. But then this other kind of energy, which is becoming increasingly aware of both its responsibility and capacity and the challenges of how it competes with and fights with the parasitic energy. And remember, the gap is the devil's playground. This is the same thing we're facing everywhere. And so every single thing that I've said across every other field shows up here as well. And it's kind of like on us and it's on, on the people who are participating in here to figure out how do we actually individually and collectively learn how to behave in an ethical fashion, not in a hand-wavy way, not kumbaya, we don't want to behave well, but actually practically, how and why is it that Asabia wins? How and why is it that ethics is actually the path to the most competitive solution, not a way to get yourself either, well, greenwashed, just pure bullshit, or a way to, to, to think really good thoughts while somebody else kills you, right? That's, that's the, I would say it's a, it's a practical challenge of how to wage war effectively to actually win Web3 as a matter of virtue. And that's, that's the way I would frame it. Um, some other things, just as simple heuristics. Catastrophism in either direction is a sign of a weak mind. Now, obviously, it's not all a scam, and obviously, it's not all virtue. Right? That's sort of trivially obvious. I mean, yet I find lots of people have trouble with that simplicity. Um, the devil's in the details like crazy, like it's super nuanced, even like a given project, which may itself actually be mostly a scam, probably has three or four people inside of it are doing really interesting things that are important. Contrary-wise, a whole project, which is actually really, really well thought through, like say Ethereum, has a whole bunch of big chunks of it that are terrible, like, was it called, Consensus? forgot what their name was. Do you know who I'm talking about? Mm, no, I really anyway. don't all the details that closely. Yeah, the parasites are everywhere, but also really high quality people are trying to do good things. So, but if you point at the big picture, the potential energy, like the thing that we're dealing about with, kind of the target, the problem space, the domain, the thing we're focusing on is exactly the solution that we need for a big chunk of the problem. And now the challenge is, can we actually pull it off? 